the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I'm so glad you joined us, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. That's actually what this integrity series is really all about, right? How do you and I finish well? And today we're going to sit down with Tim Keller's biographer. Today's episode is brought to you by Glue. Show your community you care by praying with them and for them. Go to get.glue.us slash prayer now and create your own free texting account for your church and by leader. Ready to turn your performance reviews from dreadful to delightful? Go to leadr.com, that's leader.com. Use the promo code carry and you'll get 20% off. Well, a few months ago, Colin Hansen released a biography of Tim Keller. And today we sit down and talk about the making of Tim Keller. He's one of my heroes. And uh, on this Integrity series, by the way, we're moving into the final episodes of this. Um, I did ask Colin, I'm like, so there's nothing off the record that we don't know about about Tim where it's going to come out like there's some kind of scandal. And he's like, nope, nothing I've been able to unearth. I'm like, good, finally. Uh, one more person finished well. I'm, I'm glad to hear about it. I miss Tim. He's made a huge contribution. And I always love the making of, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Tim's childhood overcoming loneliness, his teenage rebellion against Christianity, and uh, there's some funny moments in that, why he finished well, and why he wanted people to know about his weaknesses too. Obviously, Tim was not a perfect leader. Uh, What were some of those? So this is part five of our mini integrity series on the church. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you are uh, listening, but you haven't subscribed, please do that. When you subscribe to this show, here's what it helps us do. It helps us to reach more people. It improves the quality of the guests. And when you leave a rating and review, it makes it visible to other people. So if you appreciated this series, share it, follow, leave a rating and review. We would so appreciate it. So Colin Hansen serves as the vice president of content and editor-in-chief for the Gospel Coalition. He hosts the Gospel Bound podcast and has written and edited many books. He earned an MDiv at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and an undergraduate degree in journalism and history from Northwestern University. He's also an adjunct professor of apologetics and co-chair of the advisory board at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. And man, this is a great conversation. I felt like we could have gone for four hours, but we didn't. But you're going to get a full cup. And I always love studying what makes up people that I admire because there's little clues along the way. It also reminds me that we're all human. So as you know, prayer is an important ministry for any church. And in your community, there are thousands of people who are struggling with challenges. Think about the people you want to reach, the people you pray for. They got marriage issues, financial concerns, loneliness, and they're also looking for answers. Well, what if your church can provide hope, empathy, and love? But the question is, how do you connect with them? That's where texting, a really surprising ministry, comes in. In less than five minutes, your church can have a major impact. So Glue wants to help you. You can go to get.glue.us slash prayer to sign up for a free texting account. You'll get a dedicated phone number. You can display that number anywhere in your community, billboards, coffee shops, wherever. Have people text in their prayer request, and suddenly you and the people on your prayer team can be praying for people and This is absolutely free. Glue wants to help. So show your community you care 
by taking the simple step. Go to get.glue.us slash prayer right now to create your free account. This works for a church of any size and any budget. That's get.glue.us slash prayer. And let's be real for a second. Performance reviews kind of stink, don't they? Why? Because once or twice a year, it's just not enough for feedback. And sometimes you blindside people or you're nice or you're passive aggressive. That's why Leader's performance reviews are built for you in mind. Leader is a people platform that makes managers better leaders. So say goodbye to traditional performance reviews that everybody dreads and say hello to a more intentional, effective approach. Check out leader.com. That's L-E-A-D-R, no second E.com and learn how to turn your reviews from dreadful to delightful. Mention my name as a promo code, C-A-R-E-Y, Carrie. You'll get 20% off your first year. And now here is part five of our integrity series, my conversation with Tim Keller's biographer, Colin Hansen. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm curious, how did you initially come across Tim Keller? Uh, just give us the origin story. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think I'm like a lot of people in the millennial generation where as we were coming up and heading into ministry, Tim Keller began to be this kind of name that we were hearing about, especially related to church planting, especially related to global cities. This is after 9-11. And so I was working for Christianity Today magazine at the time, and I was sent to cover the first ever meeting of the Gospel Coalition. It was Hmm. at the campus of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School north of Chicago, and Tim Keller is one of the co-founders, and he was going to be there. He gave a talk that I still think is an absolute landmark where he works through gospel-centered ministry, especially focusing on Jesus as the true and better fulfillment of all these different Old Testament figures. They're very memorable. And I remember talking to him afterward, hey, I'm working on a book. This was my first book, Young Restless Reformed. And I said, can you, you know, could you help me with this? And he said, no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. And he kind of felt a little bad maybe and then said, well, here's my email address. You can email me. And I thought, okay, here's my chance. So I emailed him about 10 questions or so. And he responded with, yes, no, no, yes, no, no. It was useless to me <laughs> as a journalist. So, and a little bit later, um, I reached out to him and I said, hey, I'm thinking about a series of books about cultural engagement. Do you want to work together on them? And that was the shock. He said, yes. And then shortly thereafter, I started working working with him at the Gospel Coalition. So, yeah, first meeting was there in 2007, started working together in 2010 and, uh, and worked closely together for those 13 years. Tim was really straightforward, wasn't he? I mean, my interactions with him were interview-based, but I, I, it's funny when he said no, I'm like, oh, you know what? I can imagine that coming out of his mouth. Well, even even as somebody who's pretty conflict-averse and he liked, you know, likes people liking him, mm-hmm. um, two things he often would say about himself— yeah, being in New York a long time, especially if you're not from there, you'll come across a little little abrupt. And then and then you meet and then you meet Kathy and you realize that Tim is kind of like the the less direct of the two mm. of, of them. Uh but yeah, that's that's a New York thing. It's also just kind of an eastern Pennsylvania thing. Overall with yeah. Tim, just as you know from interviewing him so many times, just what you saw is what you got from yep. him. And very, very straightforward. Yeah. And um, so the biography came out, it's called Timothy Keller, came out uh, earlier this year before he passed away. And uh, if people want to grab it, I would highly recommend. You share quite a bit of his origin story. 
And I'm interested in how, you know, our childhood shapes us as adults. I think none of us really escape that. There are things that happen along the way. What were some moments, tendencies, patterns in his family of origin, his childhood, that really shaped the Tim Keller that we've all come to know and many of us came to love and respect? I think this is one of the more significant contributions of the book. Yeah. Um, the only living immediate family member now from the Kellers would be Tim's younger sister. And it's interesting that I, I took a different kind of approach with this book. I, I did talk to Tim. I talked to him extensively, but I knew that he wouldn't necessarily be the best source on himself. So one of the first two people I talked to was his sister, Sharon. And all of a sudden, all these windows into Tim Keller's life began to open. And you began to identify his his father, who worked a lot, middle-class manager, very distant, to the point where I would say something like, well, you know, I'd say to a friend of, of Tim something about him being remote and not working. They're like, no, you don't understand. He literally would not speak. You go into their home and you would not hear him speak at all. And then I would hear a lot of stories about, okay, him being a, a German Lutheran, marrying this Italian Catholic wife they met in, in World War II. And all of a sudden, the stories from Tim's sister about their mother started to come out. And these weren't things that Tim really ever talked about anywhere wow. else. But the fact was that she was extremely strict she had very, very high expectations specifically of her oldest son. She was very religious, and mm. she expected her son to go off and to sort of make her proud in his religious achievement. Um, Tim was simultaneously, they, they call him, family members would call him Boy Scout because he was the oldest child who always did the right thing. Yet at the same time, when he went off to college, he really did rebel, and he rebelled mm. in large part against his mother. He was torn between the dynamics of, of wanting to, to do the right thing, but also the pressures of falling far short. And so what it helped me to see, Carrie, is that when he would write his seminal book, The Prodigal God, about the, the role of grace, and he's talking about the parable of the two sons, not just the prodigal son, but the two sons that Tim really demonstrated the the proclivities of both sons, mm. that he had the older son, the tendency toward legalism of, of, a, of approving, kind of of living up to his mother's expectations, but also the, the difficulty of living under that and the desire to just get away from it. So they argued a lot growing up. It was just, it sounded like a fairly tense environment, but he became a kind of protector, especially of his, of his sister. And so once I saw that, all of a sudden, Tim's core message of the transforming power of grace, this gift from God that changes everything about our lives, all of a sudden that made a lot more sense. Mm. The, the picture that also emerges that you paint, Colin, is that Tim was lonely as a child. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit more? 
Yeah, so part of it's just what it's like to grow up in the 50s and 60s <laughs> in, in, in terms of, you know, in terms of you don't have the same entertainment options there, but yeah. they also lived on the edge of town. He was in a gifted program, which meant that he wasn't going to the neighborhood school. He was going across town. It was set up in such a way that contributed to him being, being bullied um, in some different ways. Um, also, they... His mother did not allow the boys, uh, Tim had a younger brother as well, did not allow the boys to fight back at all in the neighborhood. But as uh, Tim's sister would say, it led Tim to really learn how to argue his way out of things. <laughs> and so you can see some of the initial apologetics and things like that coming out. But you definitely do get the picture of a child who, I mean, he's teaching himself to read by age three. Hmm. And and that family definitely, you know, it was a it was a middle class family with some, you know, they had they had some books and there were some restrictions on what they could listen to and things like that. But it wasn't some sort of extraordinary home. So part of the loneliness is simply that, as as uh, Tim's sister Sharon would tell me, um, that he just you could see that he was a global kind of thinker. Mm-hmm. He was just he he was different from a from an early age, and there but there was a lot of but there was a lot of tension because he didn't yet really know who he was. He that identity was not settled at all, and that bled into his college experience. He was very much still searching for that identity. Yeah, is it true that he spent a lot of time reading the encyclopedia? <laughs> no doubt. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it kind of it's an interesting thing that I've heard from some other uh, significant figures of that same generation. The 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 classic experience of Tim, and I think you could say this about him, anybody who would have known him all the way throughout his entire life, is that when he saw something, he wanted to know the story behind it, and he wanted to tell you about it. Just a natural teacher, so there was an innate curiosity a desire to learn what is the story behind this and a pursuit to find that out and then tell you that whole story. So so friends and family would talk about vacationing in England and they'd be looking out over a vista and Tim would all of a sudden burst into a 30-minute lecture on the history of the region because <laughs> <laughs> he'd been sitting up all night reading about it. Or they'd be sitting on a beach in South Carolina or going on a tour of Charleston, and he would become the tour guide because he knew everything about that that place. So yeah, that pattern of, I see something on TV, I want to know about what's going on there. I'm going to read the encyclopedia, and then I'm going to teach the rest of my family about you know about what's going on um, behind that. That was a that was a pattern that was there in the beginning, and it continued through his whole life. Fascinating. So for younger listeners, an encyclopedia, which I grew up with in my home, every family pretty much had one back in the day. Imagine Wikipedia bound and uh, sitting in anywhere from a two volume to a forty volume set on a bookshelf. You can just pick it up, look up a subject, and read the entry. And that's what Tim did. Is it true that he had a like he had incredible memory? So in my three interviews with him, I remember the second one, which was maybe a year, year and a half after my first one. So we met in person in Manhattan just before the pandemic, had a a wonderful sit down for a couple of hours and a great interview came out of that. And then about a year and a half later, I'm picking up on Zoom and he, I don't think he looked at his notes, but he said, Carrie, last time we were together, you asked me about, and I told you blank, blank, blank. And I'm like, 
in my head, I'm like, okay, I don't remember. That was like one of the most important interviews I've ever done, but I don't remember what I asked him per se, but he did. And then I've also heard through the grapevine that he may have had a photographic memory. Do you want to talk about his ability to recall and knowledge and memory, et cetera, et cetera? I, I think, Carrie, that was simply a a gift from God. Wow. You know, sometimes hmm. you you look at you look at a figure somebody that we aspire to in leadership, we aspire to emulate, somebody who's been especially successful, and we think, I'm going to learn their method. You know, one thing you're not really going to find in my book is a clear method of how to become like Tim Keller. How to be Tim Keller. Yeah, exactly. I don't really think that's how he, he didn't really think to replicate himself Mm. that way. And I think at some level, so, for example, people have asked him, for those of you know listening out there who are preachers, a lot of the things, you'll have a system for remembering illustrations and right. anecdotes and things like that. People would ask Tim, what's your system? And he said, I'm, I, I can't really tell you. I don't have a system, which was another way of his saying, well, he could recall things that other people couldn't couldn't recall. And so it just wasn't a replicable system there. So especially his, when you look at him as a student, I think for the, the three years that, I, that he spent at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, I just can't imagine anybody else who ever could have gotten more out of their graduate education. All the things he could recall, really that's the backbone of my book, is because he could recall so much of what he learned there. So I don't know exactly how I would describe his his memory and his abilities for recall, but that just seems to be a kind of supernatural gifting that I just don't think you see very often at all. And I'm not sure I've, I've seen anybody else with, with, that, with that parallel gift. Mm. Talk a little bit about his rebellion in his teen and college years. What happened there? How far away from the faith of his childhood did he stray, et cetera, et cetera? So one of my key sources on this question, and I was just uh, corresponding with him even this week, was the best man at Tim and Kathy's wedding. His name Mm. is Bruce Henderson, a retired uh, professor. And Bruce is he kind of speaks about Tim in a way that only one of your longest friends can speak about you. <laughs> only the best man at, at, at your wedding can speak about you because he's one of the few people, again, outside of that immediate family, who knew Tim not as a Christian. Right. And so he, he just describes how Tim was very much not clear on on who he was, of who he wanted to be, um, was very demonstrative in his arguing. So in one sense, he had very much strayed away from the assumptions about race and religion and things like that that he'd inherited from his family. But of course, he started college in 1968. That was a fairly common thing at the time. At the same time, the people he tended to be arguing with about this stuff were the Christians, mm-hmm. were InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So at another level, he's still with that group. So he's definitely rebelling. He's he's pushing boundaries. He's asking questions. But at the same time, he's doing it within that community structure. And you would actually see throughout his entire life 
That's why he always believed in the transformative power of evangelistic communities. You mentioned the pandemic. He was so discouraged at the beginning of the pandemic, especially about evangelism, because he thought it happens in community. This is how people's lives change is in community. Well, when you go back and you look at his story, that's absolutely true. It's how he came Mm. to faith, and it's how he continued to grow was always in the context of that community. So, you know, the rebellion was real, but he was also doing it within a context where he was going back and forth with with Christians like his friend Bruce. So, Tim becomes one of the leading voices of the Reformed Christianity, and his generation ultimately ends up becoming Presbyterian. But he had a real hodgepodge of a theological background, didn't he? <laughs> like, like, what were the ingredients that uh, it didn't necessarily lead to Reformed thinking or Presbyterianism? No, in fact, that was one of the the key dynamics of that relationship with his mother, because his mother's church, the one that she brought the family to, was an an evangelical congregational church, basically kind of fundamentalist leaning, but also very much non or even anti-reformed. So, one of the reasons he went to Gordon-Conwell and not Westminster in Philadelphia was because he wasn't reformed. And in fact, it was a clear thing from his mom and from the bishop of that denomination was, don't you dare. Don't you dare go off and and become reformed. But he ran into a very formidable uh, challenger, and that was Kathy Christie. That was uh, Kathy Kathy Keller. (laughs) Then later, they became best friends at Gordon-Conwell. And she was the one who really introduced him to a lot of his formative theological thinking. But it remained eclectic, I mean, to say the least, as you would say, because one of those, I mean, you could point to Jonathan Edwards and say a stalwart of Reformed theology in American history, but then you can turn over and say the other key figure is C.S. Lewis, who definitely does not fit that mold at all. So, you'd look throughout and you'd see, I mean, he, he, at at his core, he was saved within a broadly evangelical context of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, he would develop in a broadly evangelical context of Gordon-Conwell. At Gordon-Conwell, he developed those Reformed convictions, became a Presbyterian, and then went deeper into that. But I think, as you can see fairly clearly in my book and others' documentation of him, he retained great appreciation for people that, that he, I mean, continued to learn from people that he disagreed from. In fact, I think if we're just thinking about some leadership applications here, one of the key signal contributions of Tim Keller would be the ability to learn from people that you disagree with. So we could we could cite a lot of examples here, but one key one would be N.T. Wright. Uh, you know, similar generation to Tim, similar age, similar accomplishments. On a lot of the things related to Reformed theology and the Reformation, they would have disagreed strongly. But that never stopped Tim from strongly recommending some of his works, such as his work on the resurrection. Um, so that just that was something that was there from the very beginning in InterVarsity. His only uh, personal mentor ever 
uh, was Ed Clowney. Ed Clowney was yeah. the president of Westminster, but Ed knew that he wasn't reformed, that Tim wasn't reformed. That's why he encouraged him to go to Gordon Conwell. But then it kind of came full circle because Ed Clowney then did lectures at Gordon Conwell mm-hmm. that helped to contribute to Tim becoming reformed. The only other name I'll just toss out there at this point, at least, would be R.C. Sproul. Yeah. Um, many people may not realize R.C. actually performed the wedding ceremony for Tim and Kathy. Mm-hmm. And Tim was very much closely involved with a lot of people influenced by by R.C. Sproul, and actually uh, made some uh, made some trips and visits to Ligonier Valley Study Center in Western Pennsylvania uh, shortly after R.C. Sproul had started it. What was Tim's seminal moment where he went from that period of doubt, rebellion? Because I think he was questioning the very foundation of the Christian faith. Is it true? Is it credible? Is this something I'm going to base my life on? What was his turning point? A turning point there is in 1970. Um, It's the end of his sophomore year. And all all these questions are coming uh, coming to the fore. It, it's not, it, it's a common experience. I think that a lot of us face, you're in that sophomore year. You're that, you're that wise fool. You've learned enough to be dangerous in some ways. And that's really where he was. It was that turning point of, I can't really go back to what I inherited from my church of my upbringing, but I'm not sure I want to go completely against it. And what happened ultimately was that in his searching, he was found. Mm. I mean, he's looking for all these things, but ultimately that became just absolutely formative for his, not only his experience, but then what he would teach of, of God's grace finding him, of him being overwhelmed. So he he, he engages in all these intellectual pursuits, but uh, Tim's, Tim's um, teaching philosophy was always that you start out teaching, and if everybody's taking notes, then you're doing the right thing. But by the end, if anybody's taking notes, you've done something wrong. They need to be looking up and listening to you engaged emotionally. So that's a, that's a very similar to the dynamic of his conversion in 1970 was he's doing all this intellectual investigation, and he's concluding this doesn't have the answer. This doesn't have the answer. This doesn't have the answer. This is the age of existentialism, of the death of God movement, but he isn't finding, Buddhism isn't working for him. Islam, these things are not working. But in the end, it's not some mere intellectual exercise. It is a transformative encounter with Christ himself and acceptance of the gift of grace and received in the context of a believing, worshiping community, which was his friends for the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. What happened to his loneliness as he got older? I mean, you're talking to lifelong friends. He had uh, a very strong marriage all of his life yeah. with Kathy. Um, how did he, because loneliness is now basically, and you know this, Colin, yeah. an epidemic for right. a lot of leaders. And I can relate feeling lonely as a child. I definitely had that in my own past. What did Tim do about his relationships as he moved into adulthood and then maturity? It's a very perceptive question because it, not all church leaders are going to answer that question the same way. And so with Tim specifically, what you see is, Primarily, the loneliness was was dealt with through an exceptionally strong relationship with with Kathy. 
with his wife. Um, so he develops this incredibly strong group of friends. They they dub themselves the Edmund P. Clowney Fan Club at Gordon Conwell, and it's it's two women and it's two men, and they they pair off, and they remain lifelong friends. So uh, David Midwood, the other the other man, died of cancer years ago. But Louise was an absolute amazing help to me on the book. She gave me just unparalleled insight into those years, and she even mailed me a lot of the the documentation that she'd kept from those years. So they made very, very, very strong friendships in seminary. There's a group called the, the Robins that they would send letters around to from the seminary years. And then, then also when Tim moved on, Tim McCarthy moved on after seminary to Hopewell, Virginia, for his first pastorate. They made some really strong, lifelong friends there as well, especially Graham and Lori Howell, who make a significant appearance in the book as well. But one thing I I noticed in there mm-hmm. is that that was very much true in seminary. It was true in his first pastorate, and then. And Kathy was primarily the person and is primarily the person who facilitates a lot of those relationships and friendships. But professionally, as it went on, then Tim's relationship started to become a little bit more ministry-based or professional. Mm -hmm. And then when he got to New York, things grew so quickly that I didn't find a lot of evidence of close friendships in Mm -hmm. New York in a lot of ways. It's also, you're growing up, your kids become busier. And then fairly soon into that, he becomes a, a, I mean, well, within a decade or so, you've got 9-11. And then after that, the books and becomes a really world-renowned figure in that process. And friendship becomes a lot more complicated. The thing that I'll add here in the end is that Something seemed to have liberated him with his diagnosis three years ago with of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, you know, when you're a ministry leader, you have to maintain a lot of relationships for professional reasons. He seemed to have been liberated for the first time in his life to think about his legacy and to think about investing into younger generations. And so he seemed to have be gotten deeper into developing some of those friendships and rekindling older friendships really when he was liberated from a lot of the pressures of ministry and when his life's end began to come into focus. But I think Tim's a, a good example of just how complicated friendships and and lonely and how common loneliness can become for leaders. There was one person, you know, it was interesting that Tim spoke so highly, especially of two people in New York. One of them was Bruce Terrell. And one of them was Dick Kaufman. Dick just died a little while ago. They were his two main executive pastors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not his only two, but his two main ones. So you could sense that the the real close relationships largely came from how these men had served his ministry and really had solidified some of his weaknesses. And that really meant a lot and meant a tremendous amount to him. But I wouldn't say that friendship became natural. I, I guess one thing... One final thing to mention, just in terms of loneliness, though, I don't think Tim ever would have thought himself lonely so long as he had a book. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. a, a books are friends. Yeah. You know, so if he was engaging, that was a dynamic exercise of friendship. Mm. 
with with the book and with its author. So well, you might be able to argue that he was friends with C.S. Lewis, even though yeah, they never that, intersected, right? That is that's exactly what I'm trying to get at, and I think mm-hmm. even more so than well, I'll, I'll say something about Lewis and then something about Tolkien. The thing about Lewis is Mako Fujimura, what the uh, artist, the renowned artist, was an elder at Redeemer, and he would say. We always knew when Tim didn't have time to prepare a sermon because he would just quote C.S. Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) But he could recall C.S. Lewis, and it was like Lewis was one of his old friends. Hmm. And then Tolkien was that older friend because Tolkien was the only author outside of Scripture where Tim said, I never stopped reading him. I was always reading Tolkien. So Tolkien was that constant companion of his as well. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's very fascinating. And what impressed me was some friendships were lifelong. And it seemed like Tim and Kathy, I mean, they wrote a book on the meaning of marriage and everything right. like that. But I think they really did find solace in each other. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's one reason why so many of us are praying so much now uh, for Kathy and, mm-hmm. and love her and think of her in, in this grief, because you don't, and I don't mean to say that their marriage has to be paradigmatic for everybody in leadership, whether inside or outside the church. It's simply to observe that you and I could talk to Tim in a professional context, and we'd be getting the authentic Tim. But when you would see him together with Kathy, or you'd call him up and you'd realize that in a New York apartment— you know they're they're never far from each other, <laughs> so, so you're gonna get Kathy's comments in the background. It was just a a, a constant dialogue um, between the two of them, and that is rare. And it's it's kind of like Tim's recall. If it's a gift that you receive, then you accept it. But it just doesn't always happen for everybody else. Even when you're very close in marriage, you may not have that kind of overlap or even that kind of closeness. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of different directions we can go. One, (laughs) and I want to put a pin in Tim's last three years, because I want to come back to that toward the end. He said something to me that, honestly, I can't get out of my mind. I've shared it with friends, and they can't get it out of their mind, just about your legacy and distraction, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll come back to that. Um, Tim became one of the best known. I mean, whenever I introduce Tim, either on the show or to friends or introduce a thought, you know, I'll often say, unlike most of us, he'll be read a hundred years from now. And I think that's very true. I mean, his contribution is at that level. But when he died, I was reflecting on him and it struck me that Tim didn't build a platform thinking or hoping that his message would be heard. He offered a compelling message and the platform built itself. Is that a naive understanding? Like I, I, I get hit up by leaders all the time. It's like, how do I build a platform? How do I get more followers? To me, from what I know on the outside looking in of Tim, he didn't think that way at all. Is that is that fair? Is that a characteristic? Or was he more yeah. strategic about building platform than it might appear? No, I, I, I think you're right about that. And mm. I'll mention here, Kathy, as well. And it's, and it's one of the reasons why writing this book had been something of an awkward exercise because Tim knew that this was something that would help other church leaders, that cooperating and working on this book would help with other church leaders. But talking about himself, pointing to himself, using himself as an example did not come 
naturally at all. That was very awkward. It's not something he enjoyed doing. In fact, it really relates not only personality-wise, but also strategy-wise, going back to something that Redeemer Presbyterian Church implemented from its founding in 1989. And keep in mind that Kathy was the communications director for the church, and it was a no-publicity um, a no publicity policy, essentially. Now, there were all kinds of exceptions to this. What, what um, did that mean, no publicity Well, policy? what it meant was they did not go into New York. Like, kind of the stereotype you see now, Carrie, is that a new church arrives in town mm-hmm. and you see these placards everywhere saying, not like your grandmother's church. Come, you know, new, exciting, dynamic, whatever. It was really the opposite for them. It was like... We're going to lay low. We're not seeking publicity. We're not trying to promote ourselves. In fact, we're trying not to promote ourselves. I think there was a very keen except, well, I'll, I'll say two things on this, and that's why they're in my introduction in the book. The first part is personal. What uh, The first line of my book is says this, the first 10,000 people Tim Keller sees when he walks out his apartment door have no idea who he is. I'm not sure that's true, but it's how Tim and Kathy thought of themselves. Uh, I, my first book was about Billy Graham. Billy Graham sought fame so that people would hear about Jesus. You're exactly right. Tim never did that. That was just not what he did. People didn't even know that Tim would be meeting with a president of the United States because he wouldn't broadcast that information, whereas Billy Graham would promote that as a way of saying, see, my message has credibility, all sort of stuff. So Tim, personality-wise and strategically, just did did not do that. That was the first reason. The second reason about a no publicity process or policy of like not seeking out media, not trying to send out press releases, things like that, was because their goal was to try to reach people who had been in New York City for a long period of time and did not know Jesus. Mm-hmm. You weren't really going to get a lot of help. In fact, it would typically backfire on you. So I, I say in the book that he wanted to reach skeptics on the Upper East Side of Manhattan more than he wanted to sell books in Nashville. And sometimes selling books to evangelical Christians makes it harder for you to reach people in New York City. So hmm. we've seen some other churches go into New York, and really it's for people who are tourists in the city or passing through a brief period of time. That's not the kind of church that Tim Keller sought to build. It's not the example he set with his family. And so, yeah, I just he he was not about building a platform so that this would happen. In fact, one of the things that he regretted is he thought I sh- we should have separated congregations earlier to replicate the different communities instead of making it about me. But the part of the problem was the Lord was working a revival. He was such a gifted teacher that it grew too quickly and it outpaced things. So yeah, I mean, it's just, he, you're absolutely right. He did not seek to build that platform. And in some ways it might've been, I, I felt like Tim left people wanting more. Mm-hmm. And thus they did. <laughs> yeah, that is a really good point. That's a really, that's very well said, Colin. And yet at the same time, you know, you mentioned New York City. So in, in your book, you say Robin Williams, Elizabeth yeah. Hasselback, many others would frequent or visit Redeemer. How did he relate to famous people? 
Yeah, so the there's a great observation about this that came from David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, and David another was, friend of Tim's. Yeah, exactly. So so they um they were part of a book club of some different folks in the last number of years, and the way he described it was that everybody in the room would just you know the virtual room would just kind of wait and see what Tim would say. And then they would finally have to ask him. And then everybody just kind of hoped that he had liked what they had said. I, Tim kind of had an anti-charisma charisma. I don't know how to describe it, but he was not he was not fascinated or impressed by famous people, which is one reason why I think famous people felt comfortable <laughs> with him. Mm-hmm. He just mm-hmm. wasn't the kind of person who was going to reach out to you and, and try to take advantage of you at all. Um, And so that's part of what allowed people in New York to be able to, to be able to attend because it wasn't, I mean, I, I I ran into Tim and Elizabeth Hasselbeck when I visited one time and they were just in the fellowship hall, just grabbing, you know, just eating whatever coffee and donuts or something like that. It was just, it was not a, a place where if you wanted to be seen or be impressed or, you know, to impress others, Mm -hmm. it's not the, just, Tim had set that tone that he wasn't really impressed, which ironically made it easier for him to relate to famous people. So um, I don't know how you'd explain that to others, but it's it's very much just his personality. Hmm. And what, there was no photographer there to get the pics to post to social, et cetera, Yeah, you know, et you know what? That actually kind of makes his biographer a little bit upset because I was, I, you know, for example, I said, okay, so I, I'm sure you guys have photographs of the message on September 16th, 2001. I'm sure you have photographs of the lines extending outside the church building because that'd be really helpful to include in the book to be able to illustrate. Mm. No, of course no. they don't. In fact, <laughs> you know, when some Christian media showed up to be able to broadcast and their service, Kathy physically chased them away and told them, do not come back. There was just this certain sense that what they were doing was precious and physical. It was for these people here. It wasn't just for consumption. Part of this is generational, though, as well, Mm -hmm. because this is still pre-social media, Mm -hmm. pre-smartphones and things like that. It'd probably be different today. But uh, so it's personal and strategic and also just probably the time of life. Yeah, although I think there's something very compelling to it. I think sometimes yeah. we get over our skis in yeah. terms of seeking influence and maybe you get it, but you don't have enough character to sustain it or enough content to sustain it. And yeah. Tim was the opposite. Well, let me give you an example of that. You're exactly yeah. right on here, Carrie. The example here is that, so I, I, I can, I don't know, I think I've ever said this, this part before. Um, so Tim and I had feedback on, on the book. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I, so I had gathered everything that I could find about why he originally did not want to go to New York. All the, all the rationale he'd given things about mm-hmm. his family, about Kathy, about how much he liked his job, of why he didn't want to plant this church. But then he came and he clarified something. He said, Kyle, that wasn't the reason. The reason was I didn't think my prayer life could sustain the challenge. Mm-hmm. I just, I was not ready spiritually to be able to do it. That's what I was afraid of the most. Wow. And um and keep in mind this is somebody who achieved 
I mean, I know this is going to be exaggerated because I can't think of every different scenario, but I don't know how many parallels we have in Christian history for somebody's literary output over a 15-year period, a seven, uh, actually a little bit less than that period that we have like from Tim's. And um, hmm. But of course, it's in part because he started at age 57. With that. Was that his first book? Well, it was his first major release. He'd earlier done work on Ministry of Mercy. That was his uh, demon, Doctor of Ministry work uh, at Westminster Seminary. So that's kind of his academic expertise. And then he'd also done some chapters. But the first major release was not until he was 57, coming out in 2008, The Reason for God, as well as The Prodigal God. So to your point, <laughs> there, there was it was well— he was baking for a while, <laughs> and the and the and the result was very tasty. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and uh, and what a great uh, first book! I mean, my goodness, my goodness, the reason for God. Um, what do you think, having done as much research, known him for as long as you've known him? What do you think is the most misunderstood aspect about Tim Keller? His life, his personality, teaching. You pick. Yeah. So, I. Th- think that people on both the political and theological spectrum, I think they, I think right and left both misunderstand him. And it's kind of weird that both would misunderstand it, but I think it's basically this, that he at his core would be accurately described as a consistent, lifelong, from his conversion, conservative evangelical. Now, again, to clarify, I'm speaking there about his theological convictions uh, and his founding of ministries like where I work, the Gospel Coalition. That was very consistent. In fact, he developed those convictions pretty much as a young adult, and he didn't really ever deviate from them. Um, So the reason that's confusing on both sides is because missiologically, being in New York, it meant that he was often emphasizing what Christians share in common with each other over what we disagree about with each other. So that was a missiological decision that made him in some ways perhaps sound a little bit more ecumenical. So when you love your enemies, you respect their arguments, Christian or non-Christian, and you're focused on what Christians share in common for missiological purposes, it might make people think that you lean a little bit more left than you do just because of your disposition, because being right-wing is a little bit more considered, you know, combative and things like that. But then on the left, there might have been a misconception to say, wait a minute, maybe we don't understand how formed he was by reading the Puritans or how formed he was by Elizabeth Elliot or, or other figures that led him into what would be often described as conservative evangelical views. So I think both sides have, have misunderstood him in that way. And it was a misunderstanding that, that at least, I, I, don't, I don't know that, that, that he cared about this, but it was a misunderstanding that I hoped to try to help correct in the book. Mm-hmm. It seems to some extent the die after his conversion was set early. So you have the story from 1970. It was the Kent State shootings. Right. Uh, the Jesus movement had come to yeah. Bush. Is it Bushnell College? Bucknell. Where, Bucknell, Bucknell yeah. thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I was thinking of binoculars. Bucknell yeah. College, <laughs> uh, where Tim was attending. 
And he decided to protest. And when I read what he put on the sign, he and a friend put on a sign, I laughed out loud. It was, it was the best. So his protest sign read, and I'm quoting, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm like, okay, way to go, 21-year-old Tim. That's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, do you see the die being cast that early in his thinking and his personality and his makeup and everything? Well, Gary, I think it was I think it was set so quickly that I actually made a mistake in the book. So the mistake that I made in the book is that I never talked about his official or formal call to ministry. Oh wow. It didn't even occur to me to ask <laughs> about it, and apparently it didn't occur to Tim to tell me about it because it was so quick that he's converted to all of a sudden He's out there at the bookstall for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship arguing with people and recommending books. Like that, that's just the same person that you would have imagined later on. And so part of this is because his conversion, like for many of us, it was um, it was sudden, and yet it took a long time. <laughs> so he was reading Mere Christianity. He was reading these books, and then he was converted, and then he's out there missionally. Um, you know, the, the the milieu that he was in at Bucknell, you mentioned the intellectually credible. Well, that was what we talked about earlier. His pursuit, eventually as a religion major, the other religions, does the, the message, does the gospel of Christianity, does the resurrection, does it hold up to intellectual historical scrutiny? So that's the one thing. But then when, it, when we're talking about being existentially satisfying, I mean, it's because it's a combination of things. One, it's because... It was a matter of identity and personality for him in becoming a Christian, but also this is the era of Albert Camus, of Sartre, mm -hmm. of existentialism. So this was the intellectual movement that he was learning in his classes, that he was arguing over with his classmates. And in fact, the message that Ed Clowney came to deliver as an outreach was about existentialism. It was uh -huh. related to his work on Kierkegaard when he was a grad student at Yale. So he mm. came in to address this question. So for those of us who are not in that boomer generation who lived through all of that, we might have forgotten that. Mm. But absolutely, like that was considered the avant-garde challenge to Christianity. So what's consistent for Tim is like other figures like Edwards or Calvin or Bavinck that he looked up to, he was very much engaged from the beginning in the cutting edge theological and, and intellectual and philosophical challenges to Christianity. Oh, absolutely. From the well, beginning. I can see him. That was 1970. And it's so funny among all the long haired hippies and the whole <laughs> deal. I can imagine Tim, you know, with that sign. But I can also hear a sermon of his in 2021 yeah. being along those lines, you know, and yeah. it's, it's just incredible. You mentioned before we leave young Tim entirely, Tim had some childhood wounds. Any others that we haven't touched on yet and how they shaped him? Well, I think one of the other childhood wounds would, would just come out later into adulthood, and that was just really his relationship with his younger brother. Um, this was, 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 was something—I mean, they were, he was a fair bit younger, and I don't get a strong sense that they spent a lot of time together. But one of the key differences between Tim and his younger brother, Billy— is that Billy was more like his mother, personality-wise. In fact, it was their sister who gave me the key insight. 
She said, you know, when you visited my brother Billy's place, you knew where every single thing was because it was exactly where my mother had it. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, wow. so you so you could tell. So there was that kind of thing. And the other thing was that Tim wasn't at the same church with his family for very long because they'd flipped from the Lutheran church over political and theological reasons to this other church. Tim wasn't there that long. It was kind of a decision, walk the aisle kind of place. His younger brother was the kind, and some of you may, you know, when you're listening here, you may know the personality. Tim's younger brother was the kind of kid who walked the aisle every week. <laughs> like right. he just, he knew he wanted to do the right thing. And so he did that every time. But his younger brother then ran far away and lived a homosexual lifestyle, eventually contracted AIDS and then died of it in died of complications related to AIDS mm-hmm. in 1998. Tim then preached that he became a Christian shortly before he died. I think my book is probably the first time or only time that we have documentation of the sermon that Tim had preached at that funeral. So in some ways, that was a bit of a kind of a reconciliation of that um of just that that relationship and and with their mother and with their family of kind of well also say the other thing in there is that um contracting aids and everything like that was of course just a big deal in the 1980s and the 1990s and it was a major challenge and kind of a point of shame between him and his family um but in his death, there was actually a lot of reconciliation with his parents. They came and ministered to him in hospice, which lasted a number of months. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, Tim, the reason I'm bringing all this up is because Tim really didn't talk about that very much. Mm-hmm. And he was always a challenge of what do I talk about here when people might think that I'm exploiting my brother's memory to be able to make a theological point. Right. right. So he was really loath to be able to talk about that. Um, but I thought it was really important because it's no doubt a major backdrop of his moral and intellectual and spiritual formation across his entire lifetime. When you look at his whole life, were there particular patterns, disciplines, habits, or rhythms that you think really contributed to what he was able to accomplish with his life? Well, you know, boy, that's like the only thing I can say is that man read like nobody I've ever known. Yeah, like you get the impression because he's quoting by memory from these obscure philosophers. I mean, I've spent, you know, and historians and seem to know about everything. Like, did he just wake up and read and then read some more? And Yeah, yes, and yes, and yes. So I think... You know, he's he's very much a he was very much a creature of his time and his place. Here's what mm-hmm. I mean. Being in New York, the center of publishing in the United States was so perfect for him because at one point in the heyday of newspapers and magazines, he's subscribing to all of them. So he's getting first things and he's getting Christianity Today and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Village Voice and New Yorker and New York Magazine. He's getting all of them and he's reading them, just devouring them. And then it's like the internet is made for him. Uh, One of the comments that people would often make is, yeah, I was a 25-year-old blogger in nineteen or in two thousand and six, and all of a sudden, I got an email from Tim Keller, mm-hmm. or I got a comment on my blog from Tim Keller. 
that, I mean, so things like, um, you know, most leaders I know of Tim's caliber um, have left Twitter behind a long time ago. Major reason is that you're a big inviting target. It's it's sure. a very hostile atmosphere for most prominent leaders. But Tim could not stay away because he loved learning what he could learn on Twitter, the way it would aggregate so many different things. He just loved reading that sort of stuff. So, so Tim seemed to have a much stronger idea than anybody else I know of his generation of what was happening on the internet because he was reading it. So, so I mean, the the thing is that there are only the only practices that I would recommend from this or maybe commend would be he didn't watch a lot of TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and this is not necessarily what I would recommend, but he doesn't really have hobbies. You know, so what's interesting, you, you, I didn't have these major parts of the book about, I mean, when he was younger, he played video games. When he was younger, also, he played trumpet. But those weren't things that he was still doing when he was older. So really, reading was his hobby. It was not only his ministry and his practice, but it was it was also basically his hobby. Yeah, any, any insights into how he cared for himself in terms of sleep, exercise, diet, et cetera, et cetera? Man, or... that's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't think it came up very often. Um, the one thing that I can keep in mind, or the one thing that comes to mind is that, especially for his health and just general practice, um, several of his close friends would tell me, Tim would forget to drink water if not for Kathy. And I'd say, that's a really interesting metaphor. And they said, no, I, I didn't mean that as a metaphor. I meant literally he would not <laughs> drink water unless Kathy would give it to him. And so the, the major discipline there was that Kathy very much devoted herself in many ways to caring for him in ways that he would simply lose. You know, so for example, he would want to, you know, with you or with me or anybody else, he'd want to just be on the podcast forever. And then all of a sudden you'd, you'd be like, well, Kathy's telling me that I need to get on to this. Like, <laughs> She's the one who's really trying to help him with that. And so, again, I'm not necessarily recommending this to other people. Mm -hmm. It's just to say that um, he just simply would not have been able to accomplish half of what he did without a lot of really direct support uh, from his from his wife, who was very much dedicated to to helping in those ways on multiple levels, mm. the most practical levels, relational levels, as well as intellectual levels. That's kind of what I mean. You just don't find a pairing like that that often, or mm. all of those things seem to match up. So I do get the sense that in some ways, Tim probably didn't take care of himself as well as he could have. Sure, sure. Um, but there, he did have a wife who was uh, trying to help him as she could. Oh, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's helpful to see. It's not surprising to me. Yeah. The one thing that really surprised me when I met him in person, I had him sort of pegged at 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, not at all. He's, no. he was what, 6'3", 6'4"? 6'4", yeah. 6'4". Yeah. Um, and, and not large in the terms of, of, you know, overweight or anything right. like that, but just a big, big frame. man. Big frame. That's yeah. the word. Thank you. Yeah, big, frame big frame and a large imposing presence. Very, yeah. very unassuming personality, like very self-effacing, down to earth, relaxed. And yet I could see you talk about it in the biography that when he made an argument, boy, you listen. And he was like fully engaged, like bodily engaged, 
mentally engaged, emotionally engaged. And that is, that's a tour de force. Like when you sit down with Tim Keller, I was hanging on for dear life for those (laughs) hour and a half, two hours. It's like, I'm listening to every word, making mental notes because it's, it's like a bullet train trying to keep up with them. Yeah. You don't normally find people who are good at listening as well as teaching. Um, And so one of the things that stood out to me, I thought, let's see, how do you develop his contextualization method of how to teach to New Yorkers? And I thought I'd get long lists of books, just knowing knowing Tim. And there were a couple books that I mentioned in there that he read, but really it was just sitting down and talking to people. And that's, again, what I'm getting at in that in that context. So you're, you're sitting there with some of the most prominent public evangelical intellectuals. You're in a book club with them. But he has the discipline to be able to sit there and listen to the others to the point where they have to draw him out to what to say, even though they all knew that he was the smartest person in the room Mm -hmm. and would have the most insightful comments. But I mean, I never talked with Tim about this, so I can't say it for sure. But given his innate curiosity, his humility, his respect for others, his just absolute love of learning— if you're talking, you're not necessarily learning. Yeah. You know, and I, and so he would have wanted to learn, was there something else here that I can develop, even if I might have the most insightful comments in there? Um, but yeah, you don't normally see those that combination in, in the same person. So I want to go back to something he told me in our last interview together, which I think it came out in 2023, but I believe we did it in December of 2022. So it's it's five months before he died. And he was in very good, you know, relatively speaking for someone with terminal cancer, yeah. very good mental space, lots of Absolutely. energy, et cetera. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this is a long quote, but I want to I want to quote it and then I want your comment on it. He said, I would say that as a man who was 69 years old, I was actually pretty unfocused. Because the reality is it doesn't matter whether you have cancer or not. When you're approaching 70, you should actually know that the time is short. You don't really have decades anymore. You've got years anyway. And so I should have been more focused. But I was tending, and this is the part that shocked me, I was tending to do whatever anybody asked me to do. You're a nice person, you're a minister, so you do whatever anybody asks you to do. And I had no focus. I really didn't. I wasn't saying, what do I really, if I finally had one year left, two, three, four, five, what should I be doing? I don't have, I didn't have that focus. Now I do. End of quote. And I, when I heard that from Tim, I just about fell over because I'm like, if Tim's unfocused, I don't know if there's hope for the rest of us. How do you hear that? comment about his focus. And I think he was being very sincere. He's just like, I spent the last decade responding to a ton of inbound when I probably should have been doing what God wanted me to do. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good ways for us to answer that that question. Mm-hmm. Um one of them is that it's 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 an exaggeration. Um, sure. sure. <laughs> because okay, he fair, did fair. say no to a number of different things before just by sheer capacity. And he did hire an, an assistant who his job was to help him say no to certain things. So he Very wasn't hard. just doing anything randomly. Yeah. But on top of that, he really liked, he did not, not like to disappoint people. 
he did not like to disappoint people and he did not like people being upset and he did not like conflict. So that probably meant that he said yes to some more things than he probably should have. The overall issue here, though, is that he could just get away with it more than other people could. You know, like earlier I mentioned the the question about the sermon collection. Okay. So somebody that's I would recommend everybody, if you're the kind of person who's teaching regularly, you need to have some kind of system. Tim could just get away with it. He could be so productive while being unfocused because he had exceptional ability to do those things. So he probably just didn't recognize the need to be disciplined in some of those same ways. But here's the other challenge. He was so successful as an entrepreneur, launching Redeemer Presbyterian Church, launching Redeemer City to City to start new churches around the world, launching the Gospel Coalition, that these organizations would have significant demands on him. They would say, we need your help with fundraising. Redeemer Presbyterian Church would be building these, you know, some of the first church, new church buildings in Manhattan in decades. They needed Tim's help to fundraise. You know, same thing with City to City. The Gospel Coalition needs him to speak at an event or something like that or attend a board meeting or whatever. That's the kind of thing where he was saying yes but he was saying yes to institutions that he had helped to build. But those uh. institutions were so successful that they needed him to continue to do that. And so maybe in some ways what he should have done is he should have been more deliberately mentoring young leaders. Mm. Maybe he also should have been focused on ensuring that he would be able to write everything that he wanted to write and that he wouldn't assume that he had that time. Because of course he retired at age 67, didn't get the cancer diagnosis until a couple years later. So he didn't necessarily know when he was retiring that he's, he would only have 72 years, probably realistically thought I've got a good decade there to be able to do that. So that's, that's kind of the leadership lesson and application and warning for all of us is that we're, of course, not even guaranteed 72 years. We're not guaranteed no. tomorrow from nope. what Jesus said. So what I take away from that comment from Tim is that we should try to be deliberate and focused on those things that we can do and not merely simply responding to other people's expectations of us. Um, and I do think that's that's probably what he, what, kind of the bottom line of what he was getting at with that quote. Did he have unfinished tasks yeah, unfortunately, um, he did. Um, mm. There was a, a book on I. So he, on the spot in Oxford, uh, he was doing a, a mission there, a, an evangelistic mission. And on the spot, somebody was asking him a question about biblical teaching on sexuality. And he developed, does encourage people, check out my book or check out his book on preaching. You can see his illustration of the Anglo-Saxon warrior. But the point is, he was trying to illustrate that none of us forms our identity individually, even though we have that conceit in the West. Instead, we form it communally. And he just came up with it on the spot, and it's very effective. He believed that one of the core idols and misunderstandings of our age is related to the concept of identity. And so he wanted to write something to be able to treat that concept. But what was what's interesting is that his um, his longtime publisher just didn't really think it would sell necessarily. So that's one reason why it didn't hit the forefront there. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure 
Tim has so many things that were unpublished or mm. published as essays that could become books. And I know that his um, longtime assistant, uh, Craig Ellis, is is working yeah. on some of those projects now, which is wonderful. So some of them will still see the light of day. I know that some of what he left unfinished, he wanted us to do at the, at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, which he and I launched together um, this year. So hopefully we'll be able to do some of those things. But that was one of the first things that came to mind was, boy, I don't think we're ever going to see his book on identity. And that's, uh, oh. that's sad to me. <laughs> so that first interview I did with him, uh, which I think is pushing half a million views wow. and or downloads, <laughs> is crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's the one we did in person in New yeah. York between audio and video. Yeah. But he talked about those ide- ideas. Like if I was starting over again in New York, I would actually base my preaching on identity and went through sort of three... Uh. And I'm, I have gotten more feedback to that one idea. So whoever's listening, if you could plumb the archives for any identity stuff Tim may have left behind, that would be wonderful to see more on. And you were, you were talking to him the same time that I actually saw him the last time in person. Wow. Um, All the interviews that we did were over phone and Zoom and things like that, which actually helped because I could record them and things like that. Mm. But, Hmm. um, at the, he was very much in that mindset in 2019 going into 2020. So this is the last period of time yeah. before the pandemic and before he knows he has cancer. Right. He's thinking big picture. He's thinking about his granddaughter. He's working on a, a new kind of catechism that'll address common questions emerging in the 21st century. And he's telling you and he's telling me, I was, I don't think people can go back and just grab my stuff and do that anymore. I think something's changed. Mm-hmm. And so what what he had talked with us about at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is that idolatry was that breakthrough concept that he worked to develop in the 80s and 90s that really spoke mm-hmm. to people. But yes, now we're dealing more with with questions related to identity. And what is and one reason I've emphasized this throughout this conversation is that when you go back to who he was in college, his conversion, it was very much a question for him about identity. Oh my goodness! So that's yeah. that's how it all kind of ties together for him. Um, but yeah, the more that I've read in terms of apologetics and generations, that's going to be a major concept that we need to continue to try to treat with the biblical wisdom. Colin, I feel like we talked for five hours. This is <laughs> this has been so so helpful. I want to shift to. Tim's legacy, or, 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 or let me phrase it this way, finishing well. So we live in an age where, you know, anybody who seems to get a platform seems to have skeletons in the closet yeah. and, you know, they get completely disgraced. I don't want to name names. And unfortunately, sure. everybody's got three or four in their mind, even as I <laughs> ask this question. No. Tim does not appear to be one of those people. I mean, he had his struggles. So what were some yeah. of his struggles, his weak points? And then why do you think in the end, if he finished well, and I have no reason to believe he didn't, what contributed to him finishing well and being off stage? what he said he was on stage? Yeah, I mean, I'll just answer that last question first. And it, it might sound cliche to people, but it's a genuine humility. It's a genuine humility before Jesus Christ. It's a genuine recognition of the, you know, that, that grace is a gift. And it's a and it's a strong sensibility, increasingly toward the end of his life, that life is about intimacy with God, and we're constantly seeking that spiritual renewal in both an intellectual sense and also an existential 
sense. Like that, that is what he continued to come back to is that humility. Um, and that's easy for people to say, but one of the things that stood out to me very early on is that the people who tended to idolize Tim were people who are further away from him as opposed to closer to him. That is not an obvious thing. Often you surround Hmm. yourself physically with a group of sycophants, people who just tell you what you want to hear. That was the opposite for Tim. Kind of the the people who were far away, they tended to have that lofty view of him, whereas the people close to him tended to have a realistic view of him. So I'll give you an example here. Uh, Catherine Alsdorf is a longtime colleague of, of Tim's. They worked on Every Good Endeavor together. She summarized the experience really well. Um, I was talking with her and a number of early Redeemer Presbyterian Church members, and I'd be I'd be scribbling down notes as they talk about all these amazing things about Tim, and she'd see me with my head down, and then she'd say, Colin, but don't you dare make him out to be a saint. Don't you dare. He made some of us so angry. He had real problems. He was driven to his knees in prayer because of the problems that he had. And really, it was related to management. It just wasn't one of his strengths. And so Tim would often talk and may have talked with you about it as well, about how he didn't think he was a very good leader. Mm. And I strenuously objected. He was a very good leader, but he was not a good manager. Mm. And I just chalked that up to, um, there are very few leaders in any walk of life, including the church, who are good at everything. There are very few who are good at most things. Even the greatest church leaders that you know were good at some things and not at other things. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't tend to understand that. And thus, some of them don't understand it either. And they think that they have omnicompetence. Tim did not have the illusion of omnicompetence in part because he was surrounded by some really opinionated, <laughs> you know, driven people in New York, and they didn't hesitate to point out when they were having real problems on staff. And so there were two different crises of leadership at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, one in the 90s when they were growing so quickly from their start, and the other after September 11th when they were just overwhelmed with trauma and grief and money that was pouring in. And Tim got thyroid cancer. Kathy had Crohn's disease. It was really hard. Um, both times were major challenges. And so um, that was just one of those one of those weaknesses. But it's interesting that, you know, Carrie, in this book, it's in there in part because Tim wanted people to know that. And that's what makes it more helpful to us as leaders as opposed to some books where you'll you'll learn about some figure and you never see anything that he or she did wrong or struggled with. Those, those might, they, they kind of actually fill us with some shame, like, what's wrong with me? I'm not perfect. Uh-huh. It's like there should only be one book, only one book we ever think about that with, and that should be the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't think about that. All of our heroes have clay feet. And in Tim's case, he simply just wasn't a very good manager. And sometimes wanting people to like you and not letting conflict makes you a very incapable manager. And it frustrates the people that you work with because it leaves things unresolved. So, but it, but it all comes from that place of humility to say, yeah, I didn't have everything figured out. I needed good people around me to help me. I got the sense too, that he really, I don't want to say struggled, but had 
the success came so quickly and so beyond what he expected. You know, I don't know. I think we all have hopes for our church, but I remember, uh, and I think this was recorded too in that first interview, but he talked about, is it better to have a church of 5,000 or 10 churches of 500? And you could see him going back and forth. And in the end, he said, you know, I think there's a very significant argument for 10 churches of 500, but then we were able to do so much more as a church of 5,000 because we had the resources, we had the scale. And he's, 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 he's kind of like model agnostic. It's like, this is what God did. I guess he did it. And, you know, we'll see what the future holds. And that was very refreshing to me. Was there anything else that he wanted us to know about his clay feet? What's interesting. I I mean, I'll, I'll just go back to that. Um, I just want to go back to that comment you made right there about the differences between a small church and a mm-hmm. big church. Um, Personality-wise, with his, he just wasn't a business-oriented thinker. I mean, he was very much a theologian, a philosopher, an apologist. He just didn't think in those management terms. But, you know, the and he would have thought community-based smaller churches would be more effective at evangelism. But, of course, the challenge was, where do you meet? Where do you have Mm -hmm. space? Mm -hmm. And so part of what Redeemer was able to do was build one and now in process two major church buildings that will last, Lord willing, until Jesus comes back or for generations, Mm -hmm. which is a signal contribution, not because, I mean, it does help to have a place to meet. I mean, you can do all kinds of things that way, Mm -hmm. and church was allowed to do that. So, yeah, I mean, I think he just, um, he wanted people to know why he did things the way he did them, but he wanted them to be inspired to, in faithfulness to Christ, in obedience to God's word and the leading of the spirit, to find their own way. You know, he he wrote this textbook on church ministry, Center Church, where the entire premise of it is, here's how I think about things in terms of theological vision but you're going to have to work it out in your context. So he just didn't think that his way, I mean, how many people carry, and just, and this is, um, I guess you asked the question, what does he want to see about his clay feet? He spent much of the last years of his life through Redeemer City to City, writing things about their movement, church planning movement around the world, and getting critical feedback from young, global, multi-ethnic leaders. How many people at the pinnacle of their leadership influence are sitting down and listening and asking for young people to tell them why they're wrong? That's not a common thing for leaders. Mm. When you can just go around the world and pontificate, I mean, he could have gone anywhere and just told people whatever, and they would have clapped for him. But instead, he sits there and says, you tell me what you think because I'm learning from you because you're a different generation, a different place, a different gender. That is, that's significant. So part of the clay feet was simply, he was willing for people to sit there and say, yeah, Tim, I I don't think this is going to work anymore. Maybe that works in New York, not going to work anymore. And say, (laughs) oh, okay. All right. Well, good to know. That's rare. Are there any other factors, characteristics, qualities that you think helped him live a life that that was, you know, I would say had integrity. Integrity is it didn't fall apart, right? So he had clay feet. 
He had some mistakes. He wasn't a great, um, you know, manager. I get that. Um, but he had a successful marriage. Yeah. He, there wasn't a double life. Right. Any other factors that really contributed to that? Well, I do think the the wife factor is, is so significant there because having yeah. somebody who is not impressed with you and and in the sense of not being awed by you yeah. Yeah. and kind of doesn't let you get away with that. I also think that being in New York was really significant for him because it did allow him to not see himself as a big deal. Um, because it's a city full of people who are a big deal. It's also a place of people who think that they're a big deal. So it was an interesting contrast. In many ways, he would have been more famous. I mean, of course, he toss out a Dallas or an Atlanta or something like that. Of course, he would have been more famous. His church would have been bigger and all that sort of stuff. But even London, even London, it would have been a different situation for him compared to New York. So simply the discipline of respecting your context to understand it's actually good to be in New York because it's not the kind of place that allows me to be very impressed with myself because it's a hard, it's a hard city. People are, I mean, it's it's expensive. It's just, it's, I mean, we might think of it as being exotic and that's the precisely the place that you would go if you had a big ego, but it's really not like that at all. It's a kind of a place that crushes as many dreams as it will crushes way more dreams than it ever creates. Um, and so I think, and I'll say one last thing here from Kathy, and she, and I loved her saying this. She said, if you want to know how to plant a successful megachurch, let me tell you what it is. Okay, here it is. She says, do this. Figure out where God is going to send a revival and just move there a month earlier. <laughs> just a way of saying they were so deliberate about what they did, and yet without the Spirit, didn't matter. The analogy Tim always used with all kinds of things was, we collect the wood and we put it in a pile, and we pray that the Lord would bring fire. So he was just a wood collector in that sense, going to New York. So like, we're just, we're just collecting the wood. If the Spirit doesn't work, it doesn't matter. And so that's, and the, and the Lord works through the means of our faithful, persistent prayers. Mm. So she would, she, I mean, Kathy, I just, I love this about her. She would say, I wrote the most pathetic, whiniest, terrible prayer letters in the history of church planting. And those women prayed for me. And that is why our church grew. And then mm. she would say, yeah, don't listen to my parenting advice. We are the self-described worst parents of all time, which is not true. But what was true is the sense that we don't control life, but we have faith in God who does. So you could do all the parenting things right, and it doesn't turn out very well for your kids. You could do them badly, and Tim and Kathy would say they didn't really have great parental instincts um, or characteristics, but their kids turned out pretty well. It was a humility there and a a humility before God to say, God, you're the one who ultimately makes these things work or not. Oh, this has been so inspiring, Colin. Thank you for doing the hard work of writing a biography and drilling down on so many sources, written and friendships and the whole deal. I am very honored to have met Tim. 
on three different occasions. And uh, really, <laughs> if we started the podcast and uh, I never had, uh, he was always on my, I don't think I'll ever get Tim Keller, but to be able to <laughs> do it three times in the last three years has been incredible. And I just want to thank you so much for giving us insight and some real world insight, like the clay feet. Hey man, my feet are clay. All of our feet are clay. And uh, I think a lot of people listening to this want to finish well. And you gave us uh, some really good insight into maybe some of the ingredients on how that might happen. So thank you, Colin. Thank you, Carrie. It's been a joy. So the book is called Timothy Keller. It's available everywhere you get books. And, And Colin, where can people find you online these days? If I'm at thegospelcoalition.org or at on Twitter, just Colin Hansen, two L's, H-A-N-S-E-N. Great. Thank you. Well, that was delightful and, uh, and really, it, you know, kind of fun and humanizing, and I hope it was helpful to you as well. I want to thank you so much for uh, listening to this series. We've had some great feedback to it, and we're going to wrap up the Integrity Series next time with a special Tim Keller episode. Now, it's not Hey Geography. I'm not trying to like put him up on some big pedestal. That's impossible. But I mean, he is one of those people who 100 years from now, people are still going to be reading, had a huge impact on my life and millions of other people. And what we're doing is we're taking my three interviews with Tim over the last three years, and you heard how special some of those were in this episode, and we're putting them all together, and I'm giving a bit of a tribute to Tim. So we're going to wrap it up that way. And here's an excerpt from one, well, from the next episode. So let me give you the best answer I can. Liberal democracy, which is how our, I'm using the word liberal very broadly, liberal democracy, which is how our constitution was written, how our, you know, how our country was founded, was the idea that the government is neutral when it comes to religion and religious beliefs. It does not impose religion and religious beliefs on people. It doesn't impose a worldview on people. It doesn't say, uh, it, it doesn't hook up to Catholicism or Chris or Price, you know, Lutheranism or whatever. And therefore, it's big on freedom of association, freedom of speech. So that's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, we've got Kevin Kelly, Sharon McMahon, Brad Lominick. Man, Brad and I had a great conversation. Miroslav Wolf, Arthur Brooks, Grant and Cheyenne Skeldon. Who else have we got? We've got John Christ, Judah and Chelsea Smith, Russell Moore, and a lot more coming up on the podcast. And I, again, want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Shout us out on social. And, um, well, subscribe. Uh, you miss all the podcast episodes that you don't subscribe to. So if this helped you, please subscribe, share it with a friend. And I want to give you one more thing before we go, because we're committed to helping you. For those of you who preach, or frankly, for those of you who communicate, I've got something that can help. It's a preaching cheat sheet. So you can go to preachingcheatsheet.com to get your copy for free. And what you can do, it's sort of my hacks. I'm a public speaker. I do uh, a lot of preaching and also a lot of public speaking around the world. And when I am creating a talk and getting ready to deliver it, these are the very things I use to make sure that it is top notch. It's decades of experience condensed into a single sheet that can help you get clearer, get your prep done faster, and make sure that you know ahead of time that this message is probably going to connect. So go to preachingcheatsheet.com, check it out now. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope our time together today helped you identify and break some kind of a growth barrier that you're facing.